Turn, if you will, to Luke 15. Luke 15. We'll look at the first uh, ten verses this morning. Sort of. Maybe a little more. <clears throat> it's that time of year when uh, many of you are practicing... Uh, for the presentation of Handel's Messiah, not very many weeks down the road. Now, if you're not a musician, I don't know if you've ever seen the music for that, but it's really a confusing mess if you look at it, if you're not a musician. I mean, there's not just one line of music with words under it, like we find in our bulletin when we sing songs. There's, there's a whole page of lines for that one line of music. It's, uh, apart for the sopranos and the altos and the tenors and the basses and, and then a couple more lines with lots of notes on them for the organ and oh, who knows what it looks like if you have a whole orchestra playing but it's all still music for one song so, so why is music like that? why doesn't everyone just sing the tune and the words like what we do here on Sunday morning well, because all those different parts make that simple melody fuller and richer, though the parts may be very similar, the differences add harmony and depth and contour to the music. After all, it's not just a solo. It's a core masterpiece, and all the various parts add to that beauty. Our text this morning is kind of like that. In Luke 15, we have the record of Jesus telling three different parables. I say different, but they're all virtually the same thing. Something is lost, someone finds it, and there's a house full of rejoicing. So why does it take a whole chapter to say that? Why three stories, not just one? And then, of course, this makes it rather hard to know how to preach, how to study. We could talk this morning about the parable of the lost sheep, how the sheep was lost, the shepherd found it, and there was rejoicing. And the next week, we'll come to the parable of the lost coin. The coin was lost, the woman searched for it and found it, and there was rejoicing. In the following week, we would come to the prodigal the parable of the prodigal son, and we might be surprised to hear that the son was lost and found and there was rejoicing. It all sound alike pretty quick. But you see, that approach assumes that the subtle differences in these parables really mean nothing, that it's just one story that happens to get repeated. But as we learn from Handel's Messiah, it's those differences which make it so rich and powerful. The fact that they are strung together in some familiar theme only serves to reinforce the point as it is carefully unfolded by a choir, or in this case, by the storyteller. So this morning we're going to start this study. We won't end it this morning. We'll be back to it next week and perhaps the week after, but at least this morning we will dive in. Let me read the first ten verses, although we're going to make references to the prodigal uh, son parable, which we won't read this morning. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more right, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not, do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light the lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verses 1 to 3 give us the setting of these uh, parables. Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and uh, sinners. These are the public outcasts of society. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law see what is happening and they uh, disapprove of his actions. They begin to mutter among themselves, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, their view of being righteous before God meant separating from sinners. How could anyone hang out with public outcasts and not be corrupted? Your parents probably told you that. You are known by the company you keep. In fact, the Proverbs in the Bible tell young people that. Be careful about your associations. So what on earth is Jesus doing? The religious leaders are offended. How can this man claim to teach about the holy God and about righteousness and at the same time hang out with sinners? Well, these parables are Jesus' response. Here he tells us and them, why? Three things. First of all, because God saves. God saves. That two-word statement is one of the simplest, most obvious things a Christian could say, but it is also the most profound. And throughout the ages, people have repeatedly muddied the waters of salvation by adding something to that simple statement, God saves. The great theologian B.B. Warfield wrote that this has been the confession of the entire organized church, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant in all its historical forms, Lutheran and Reformed, Calvinistic and Arminian. This confession declares with emphasis that it is, the, it is God the Lord and not man himself who saves the soul, that all the power exerted in saving the soul is from God. In other words, God saves. But when we look at these parables, technically God's not even mentioned here, only one time quite in passing. But we cannot miss that the parables 
are teaching us about God saving. Consider the parable of a shepherd searching for his lost sheep. Is there any question that this is speaking about the Lord? Throughout the Old Testament, God is repeatedly pictured as the shepherd. In Psalm 23, it's the Lord who is my shepherd. In Psalm 80, it's the Lord who is the shepherd of Israel. In Isaiah 40, he tends his flock like a shepherd and gathers the lambs in his arms. And in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, as God condemns the shepherds of Israel, he promises one day he will come himself to shepherd his people. So we're not surprised when Jesus declares in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And when he responds to questions about his association with sinners, Jesus tells this parable uh, about seeking the lost sheep. Clearly, Jesus is speaking of himself. Christ Jesus, God the Son, saves. What we have described in parable form is Jesus' unwavering commitment to seek out and to save the lost. In fact, Jesus described that himself as his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And the New Testament tells us the links to which he was willing to go in order to do that. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, to save those who are lost. So when the Scottish poet Elizabeth Clefane transforms this little parable into a, a, a hymn describing it as Jesus' saving work, we have to admit she's not distorting the meaning. You perhaps know that hymn. It goes like this. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold, away on the mountain, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This one of mine has wandered away from, from, from me. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how dark were the waters cross or how dark the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Far out in the desert he heard its cry, to sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way? that mark out the mountain's track. They were shed for the one who had gone astray or the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced tonight by many a thorn. Well, this parable teaches us that God saves, specifically Jesus saves his lost sheep. Skipping the second parable for a moment, let's talk for a second about the parable of the prodigal son. Is there any question in that parable? You know the story. 
Is there any question that God is the one represented by the Father in that parable? The scripture tells us that God is the one from whom all fatherhood proceeds. And the father figure in this parable can only be showing us the eternal father. It is God the father who loved the world enough to send his son. It is God the father who commended his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is God the father who adopts us into his family. It is upon the authority of God the father that we dare to call ourselves the children of God. And it is our Heavenly Father who welcomes those redeemed by Jesus into his eternal home. In this parable, we're not just taught that Jesus saves, we're taught that the Father saves. And then though it's less obvious at first, this truth is even present in that second parable, the parable of the lost coin. Here we have a woman searching for a lost coin. This is certainly an inclusive parable. There's a man searching for his lost sheep, and there's a woman searching for uh, a lost coin. Nice and balanced, right? Fitting for our day. But really, who is represented by the woman? Who's commonly represented by as a woman in the scripture? Is it not God's church? The Old Testament Israel was repeatedly called the bride of the Lord. Even more so in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. And how does God's church function? It has no power in and of itself. Indeed, the apostles on which the church were built were told, stay in Jerusalem, don't go out to any work. Stay in Jerusalem until you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But once she was filled with the Holy Spirit, nothing has been able to stop. Christ's church from her mission. And what is that mission given to the Spirit-filled church of God? To go into all the world with the gospel and make disciples. To shine the light of truth into the darkness that people might be saved. To seek and to save the lost by means of the gospel of Christ. This is how the New Testament scholar Michael Wilcox understands the second parable. He says, the symbolic meanings often attach to both woman and to lamp elsewhere in the scripture may well be the meanings we are intended to see in this parable. If it is meant to have this added significance, we may see in it the Spirit of God lighting the church's way as she sets about the divine work of seeking the lost. The great 19th century preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon saw it that way. He wrote the second parable represents the work of the Holy Spirit working through the church for the lost but precious souls of men. The church is that woman who sweeps her house to find the lost piece of money and in her the Spirit works his purposes of love writes Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the point of it again is, God, through the Spirit working in his church, saves. You see, this is why it's so important that we have three parables here, not just one. 
Without all three, you would get the wrong picture. Suppose we only had the parable of the prodigal son, which is often what happens. People only know that parable, and they only talk about that parable. But if you only have that parable, what might you conclude? That a lost person goes his way until he finally sees how terrible his life is, and just on his own initiative decides to turn himself around and pick himself up by his bootstraps and go back and everything's right with the Father. No work of the Savior, no work of the Spirit, it's all just Him doing it. But the other parables tell us the rest of the story about a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost at great cost. About the light of the Spirit being shined down in the dirt by the church, searching so that the lost might be found and returned and restored to the Father's house. Spurgeon wrote, if you put the three pictures in a line, they represent the whole compass of salvation. That God is the one who saves. That's the first thing we learn. Then from these parables, we learn second truth. God saves hopelessly lost people. God saves hopelessly lost people. In our day, uh, marketing has become quite a skillful endeavor. Now, if you're my age, some of you are, you may have noticed if you watch television or read a magazine that uh, most of the ads are not, um, well, they irritate you probably. They're too loud. They have a stupid sense of humor. And uh, you realize, I don't think I'm the target audience here. <laughs> For you see, even if you have a product that's useful, all sorts of people, ads will be targeted to specific groups to appeal to the needs as that specific group understands them. Now, I don't think that using marketing techniques in the advance of the gospel is a big thing that we ought to be worried about very much, but it's impossible to deny that different people perceive of the same need differently. And if we were to be wise, we might be aware of that. So here, we learn that God saves hopelessly lost people. But what do lost people look like? Does lostness always look the same? Or might it have quite different faces? Indeed, might people be really lost in ways that they never even imagined that they're lost? Well, that's the beauty of having three parables. Here we get a fuller picture of lostness. Being lost as different people experience it. And being hopelessly lost in ways people are not aware. First consider the lost sheep. How does a sheep get lost? Well, he thinks he doesn't need the shepherd to find food. He just follows his nose. Michael Wilcox put it this way. The sheep demonstrates one aspect of the human predicament. 
wandering on and on from one patch of grass to the next, from hour to hour, eyes only on what lies immediately ahead, short-sightedly unaware that he is not where he should be, while all the time he is straying farther away from the flock and the fold. And isn't that how people get lost, too? Oh, a few people turn on the heels and just walk away from God. But most people just wander off, enthralled by what seems to be greener grass at the moment. But the result is predictable. Eventually, they're hopelessly lost. Maybe that's you. Drifting away. Wandering from the fold. So focused on other things that Christ is not a priority. God who saves the lost is seeking you out. Or consider the lost coin. A coin doesn't lose itself. It's lost by the carelessness of another. But the nature of its lostness is very instructive for us. A coin is lifeless. It cannot move. It cannot call out for help. It cannot even roll over and put its shiny side up where it will be noticed. A lost coin is truly helpless. Buried in the dirt. Rolled out of sight. Purely at the mercy of the one seeking it. And God says we lost humans are like that. Oh, physically we may be very much alive, but spiritually we're dead, unable to do anything to help ourselves. We may know what God requires, but we do not find in ourselves the ability to change and to do what we know we ought to do. We need a Savior who can save the hopelessly lost. A Savior who raises us with him from the dead. A Savior like Jesus who stood at Lazarus' tomb and commanded him to come out but gave him the life to respond to that command. But you see, that's exactly what we have. God saves hopelessly lost people. So you may think there's no hope for you. You may have already given up. But God is still able to transform you out of your desperate lostness into new life. Then consider the uh, lost son. We didn't read this, but you know the parable of the prodigal. He did not wander away like the sheep. He was not lost by the carelessness of others. No, this son deliberately, defiantly, turned away from his father. He was determined to be independent no matter what the cost. He was certain he knew better. He wanted more than life in his father's house. Indeed, he probably despised everything about his father's house. And this is 
the worst kind of lostness. For it burns its bridges behind it. It alienates even those who want to help. It is proud and full of self, caring nothing about the pain it causes to others. This is what the most hopeless lost people look like. There's no way to go back. The rebellion and its destruction have been too devastating. Not only have you been hateful and ungrateful, those who you left behind were probably happy to see you go by the time you left. The thought of ever mending all that mess is beyond our imagination. It was even for the prodigal son. He never dreamed that he could be reconciled. He just was looking for a job. That's all. Maybe you're there, too. Behind your smiling face, who knows what kind of carnage you've caused at home. You may know only too well that there's no hope. That God would never forgive. But this parable teaches us quite the opposite. God saves the utterly, hopelessly, miserably lost people. People like me and like you. You say, Peter, when Jesus, our trial, denied him, swearing an oath. He said, Paul, when Stephen's act of faithfulness helped to murder him. He saved David, who stole another man's wife and killed the man to cover up his sin. God saves the hopelessly lost. And he can save you too. You see, lostness is too big of a category to deal with in one little story. So Jesus tells us three parables that we might see the magnitude of our human alienation from God and in order that we might see the magnitude of the gospel of grace whereby God saves hopelessly lost people. Finally, these parables teach us a third thing very briefly. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. It was Tom Wright, I think, who commented a couple of weeks ago on our text that Luke's vision of the Christian life was not just that it's a journey, but that it is a party. Well, that vision arises here again as we learn that heaven rejoices when the lost are found. These uh, parables are different in so many ways. The players are different. You have a, a shepherd and a homemaker and an estate-owning father. You, what is lost is different. You have the lost sheep or the lost coin, the lost son. Even what is found varies in significance. The shepherd found one sheep out of a hundred. The woman found one coin out of ten. The father recovered one lost son that represented half of his family. But the parables are all alike in this one very important way. The result of the lost being found is always rejoicing. 
We see it in verse 6. The shepherd who finds a sheep calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. We see it in verse 9. The woman who finds her coin calls her women friends and neighbors together. The phrase is exactly the same, except it's feminine, not masculine. Saying, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. We see it in verses 22 to 25. The father says to his servants, Bring the ring, bring the robe, kill the fatted calf, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. Oh, but Jesus tells us that the rejoicing described in the stories is only a token of the real rejoicing. He says it in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And he says it again in verse 10. In the same way I tell you there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Well, the various parables may have different parts to be sung together in harmony. But the rejoicing at the end is nothing less than the hallelujah chorus sung by everyone. For all heaven rejoices when the lost are found. How different this picture is from where the chapter begins. The Pharisees, back in verse 2. Here Jesus is joyfully welcoming sinners and outcasts, the lost who are being found by God. And meanwhile, the Pharisees, who were supposedly the most pious in the land, who, who supposedly had the greatest zeal for God's law. These Pharisees are mumbling and grumbling over the very thing that made angels rejoice. And what about us? As God chooses to save the most unlikely people, perhaps using the most unlikely means, do we find ourselves rejoicing with the angels or grumbling with the Pharisees that this just doesn't seem proper? Which? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful parables that we've heard before, which are so simple, and yet the more we look at them, the more profound we realize they really are. As we work through them, not just today, but next week too, oh Lord, give us a heart for the message that they hold before us. Forbid that we should be the Pharisees. Grant us, Lord, a heart filled with rejoicing as we see your grace come to sinners. May that be what our lives, is all, our lives are all about. To seek the lost, to bring the grace that the angels in heaven might rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.